From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, political commentator Joe Tuman returns to discuss the first 30 days of the Trump administration. And following that conversation, Kel Billings joins us to discuss his humanitarian work in the West Bank. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. It's hard to believe, but we're just 30 days into the Trump administration. Beginning with the inauguration, the administration has made daily news from executive orders, criticizing the judiciary, making inaccurate statements, controversial tweets, a mini-scandal, and calling the press the enemy of America. To help us make sense of it all, we're happy to be joined once again by political commentator Joe Tooman. Joe Tooman, welcome back to The Public Morality. Byron, always a pleasure. How are you? Well, a lot has happened, my friend, since we last talked. Um, yeah. I think it's safe to say that regardless of one's political leanings, we have uh, essentially no comparison, at least in what's considered the modern pres- presidency, to the current administration. How, how do you see that? I think it, it's it's accurate, uh, you know, if, we're, if you're if you're thinking in terms of history, um, you know, there are there are there are parts of uh, Mr. Trump's behavior that resemble other presidents uh, in some respects. Uh, he is kind of independent thinking, uh, maverick-like in, in a way that that's a little reminiscent of Teddy Roosevelt. Um, he's bullheaded. Uh, um, and a little too aggressive without thinking about it in ways that remind me of Andrew Jackson. Um, but, you know, I, I think he's also the product of, in, in modern times, to come back from history now to, mo- to modernity here, that uh, he's a product of, of a system that pretends to be a democracy but is really a two-party monopoly, even though we have all these third parties, but they never penetrate to the depth. And He's not a Republican. He's a populist uh, in the same way that Bernie Sanders is really a socialist more than a Democrat. I mean, his his election to this point and his governing style now, um, his difficulty governing even with his own party, I mean, Mr. Trump, reflects the fact that uh, he wouldn't be there if both parties weren't in, at some level uh, in need of reinvention. Um, and... and uh, and so we've gotten to the place where we are with this. And, and uh, there are days that he'll say things that, that make some sense, um, being, you know, for example, concerned about the spread of settlements in Israel and how that prevents a meaningful peace process. And then a day later he'll say, if with respect to Israel, two-state solution, one-state solution, let me know it works for you. It's all right. good. Right. <laughs> and, and so you don't know how to take this, man. It's... it's uh, it's really breathtakingly uh, difficult and, frankly, a little dangerous in some ways. Because if there's one person who needs to be consistent, it's the president. And and uh, you you know people people work based upon what you say. If you're constantly saying wacky different things, it's very difficult to to chart a, a path forward. Now, uh, because you study uh, these things um, very closely. It was reported today, I don't know if you're aware of this, that the, uh, a member of the National Security Council had been reassigned yes. because he publicly disagreed with the president. Yeah. And, and then his former campaign manager, Corey uh, Lewandowski, uh, went public to say that, that Mr. Trump's staff is inexperienced. I mean, is this, is this the normal type of behavior for an administration in its first month as we're recording this program? Or does this seem somewhat abnormal to you? Well, let me answer this directly. Yes, it's abnormal. 
um, primarily because it's so very uh, public. And, uh, you know, Mr. Trump has chosen to characterize some of this in, in the past couple of weeks as, you know, in the context of leaks by trying to change the story about uh, some of the mistakes he's made in rolling out policies and to suggest that there are holdovers from President Obama's administration who are trying to sabotage his. But the, the thing that makes this so different uh, from other times is that these people are willing not just to say this behind the scenes, but also to be public about this in some ways. And that is unprecedented without question. In fairness to Trump or to any president, there's always a learning curve in this job. You know, unless you've gone from being vice president to president where you've sort of seen it up close or something like that. And even then, there's a learning curve to some extent, just not as steep. And so you expect some pushback, some turmoil that you know, maybe sometimes the first people you hired turned out not to be the right people for the job, you know, helping you with something. A little bit of that. But what we've seen with this administration, I think, Byron, is frankly, in my experience, extraordinary. Um, and, and, and the problem, I think, is that Trump sort of hears the word extraordinary coming out of my mouth, for example, and says, see, that means I'm beyond the norm. I'm, I'm wonderful. And when what I mean is um, it, it's breathtakingly bad. It's, I mean, these are not small mistakes. These are large mistakes. Our uh, people who live here, you know, there's a percentage of people who like Trump's um, disposition, his, his willingness to be seen as the, you know, Jesus going into the courtyard and turning over all the Pharisees, that sort of thing, you know, the disruptor. Um, but as I said, the United States is a global leader it's not a superpower, it's the superpower. And I think a lot of people inside our country and outside our country are looking at this right now and saying uh, there seems to be a lot of instability here. Um, and uh, this, that's extraordinary. That's, to answer your question, I think it's, it's dangerous and it's, it's uh, unprecedented. Well, I'm going to follow up ever so slightly. Um, you know, it's been said uh, by a number of his supporters that they take Trump seriously and others take him literally, but they don't take him literally. And I'd like to follow up by just having you give some thoughts to what we've seen thus far. I mean, and, and this is actually the we're taping the show on the anniversary of the one month Trump administration uh -huh. um, that uh, the president and his surrogates. Let me just say appear at times to have a loose association with the truth. Yeah. Does that, con how does, that, does that concern you? I mean, <laughs> I, I Byron, was, if I was the president, I would now make you our ambassador to the United Nations because that was extremely diplomatic. Of you. <laughs> 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 and it was also the understatement, the understatement of the year. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah whether we're talking about, massacres or, or uh, Sweden or, I mean, whatever is the, the, the flavor of the day uh, and how many people showed up to watch the inauguration or, or you know, the rest of it. it um, Electro hyperbole, electoral hyperbole, college? I beg your pardon? <laughs> I said ele electoral college. Electoral yeah. college, you know. <laughs> yeah, you just go through the – every day it seems that somebody said something that is – for certain uh, hyperbole, you know, exaggeration, and sometimes just outright a factual distortion. And uh, and then, you know, unfortunately, we in the news media who I think, you know, one of the paradigm shifts, by the way, I think that have occurred with the election of this president is um, there's been so much negativity towards those of us who work in news media uh, in its many forms um, that, we have now, and in criticism also from voters for not having held him accountable for some of his exaggerations or, or lies, you know, during the election, that we now sort of feel that it's our job to fact check everything. But it also means that for our, our news coverage of this president and of you know of the United States generally, that we're in a reactive mode, constantly reacting and then checking and then you know saying gotcha when he's wrong, instead of, and, and frankly sometimes in my opinion I think we overcover. This administration, because you know, I remember one day I was showing my students in class. We, I held up the New York Times, and there were five articles or something like that on the front page of the Times, and four of the five were about him, either directly or indirectly. And this was many weeks into his administration. This wasn't just for inauguration. And 
so I think that, that we've become a little bit obsessed. I, I'm concerned that, that because the news does have a function in a democracy, um, news media. And uh, I'm concerned that we're reacting and not being proactive and sort of looking at the broader spectrum of stories that are important. It's not just how crazy he is. And, uh, of course, if you work in news, it's kind of irresistible sometimes to, to stop and look at the train wreck or to stop and look at the spectacle. Um, but not everything he says, whether it's about his daughter's <laughs> line at Nordstrom's or whatever, um, or something else, not everything is necessarily worthy of, of comment uh, from the news media. And uh, I think we've made him in some ways bigger than he was uh, and bigger maybe than he needs to be. Um, but you know, back to your original question, I, I, I think this is, as I said, uh, it's frankly extraordinary. Well, well, Joe, you just raised something that um, I, I think you and I, both being in media, would agree that when you label um, the press the enemy of the people, that's the dangerous precedent. But you also just raised for me that the reactive nature of those in the press uh, sort of buy into that danger to some degree. Exactly. I mean, I think we're sort of it, 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 it's it's a little bit symbiotic for sure. Um, you know, we we need uh, stories to draw people's attention. If we're working in a business of news where it's not, you know, PBS or something like that, where we're, you know, where our job is really to deliver an audience to advertisers, um, there is there is that need for for stuff that people will follow. And and Brian, one thing I'll tell you that has just astonished me uh, since the election. I mean, it's been many months now. Is the sizable number of people, more than half the population, who are still sort of grieving and angry and a little bit bewildered. And so uh, I've never seen the, this level of activity on social media this far after an election where people are still drawn to all of these uh, discussion groups or whatever and, and rant and rave on almost a daily basis. And from a news perspective and also because I teach, I, I track some of uh, the, the discussion, the dialogue mm -hmm. online. But you know, usually you would have expected it to die down, but there are a lot of people who are who are really upset and have not really come to grips with the fact that he's president. And you know, unless he gets impeached or something terrible happens to him, then we hope, of course, that doesn't happen. Um, then uh, uh, you know, he's he's going to be there for the next four years. Uh, and th I think there are a lot of people who are still very much shell shocked by that. And and uh, I, I think you're on Facebook or you do social media as well. I'm sure you've belong to some of the same mm -hmm. groups just to yes. sort of check or monitor the conversation. It's it's astonishing how large it is. Well, I'm, I'm going to jump to it now because I think it's a perfect segue. I uh, uh, have um, been taken to task by some of those people uh, that you're referring to right now, the shell shock, because I have, um, I thought that the Hitler comparison is just too much. And some people just don't want to hear that. And, and and historically, how would how how would you see that? Well, to, to, this I think folds in your point about his you know, the, the dangers of him saying the the media or the press or the the, the enemies of the American people. It, uh, I'm not to give a plug for myself, but I'm actually going to later today uh, publish sort of an essay on this essay and on, on my Facebook page, which I'll encourage people to repost about. The dangers of castigating you know, media that way. There's, it's a well-established First Amendment principle from our Supreme Court that the answer to speech that you might call bad speech or speech you don't like is not censorship. It's more speech. You know, there's more, more, more ideas in the marketplace of ideas is better, and let people shop and compare. And and so there's nothing wrong with Mr. Trump. Uh, challenging something he's heard in news and offering a different point of view or, or different facts if he has them. I mean, I think that's that's healthy, and we don't always in news media get everything right. There's nothing wrong with a, a little bit of pushback. But but my sense today, Byron, to your point, is that he has pushed beyond that and uh, so recklessly, frankly, in, in a dangerous way, um, labels news as, as make-believe. It's, it's the whole idea of, of fake news. I mean, he's turned it into something else where he suggests that there's an agenda and that those of us in news media purposely lie. Um, it's just so irresponsible. I'm, I'm reminded uh, in answering this uh, of, of other places where there is no free news media. There's a state 
you know, news media like in the Soviet Union, they used to have TASS, if you remember, mm-hmm. uh, that was basically a propaganda arm. Um, and the conditions for the people who lived there were, were horrible, frankly. And there was no criticism of the government. There was no, there was no democracy at that point. Of course, it was a communist country that didn't have elections that were free and fair. Um, in the in Nazi Germany, I, I you know I think maybe saying he's Hitler is a, is a strong thing, but in in that place as well, you know the newspapers there weren't and radio is what they had as their media. They didn't have television in those times. Um, knuckled under to a, a very large propaganda machine um, that that helped people to uh, or that forced people to look the other way when you know the the final solution was going on that led to the extermination of millions and millions of not just Jews, but Poles, Gypsies, gay people, yes. anybody who was sort of different. and Disabled, uh, yes. It, 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 I mean, these things were horrible. And to give a different example, now those are places that had some news media, but eventually the state took over. The, the better comparison, not comparison, but just sort of this is the, uh, this is the outer extreme, is Cambodia at the time of Pol Pot. Pol Pot, yes. Here, you know, and there was zero, no news media in Cambodia. More than a million people were, uh, way more than a million people were killed. Uh, Pol Pot's uh, metaphor referring to opposition to his regime as a disease and the need to weed out this disease sort of became code for, like they were a cancer, anybody who opposed him was a cancer. Um, uh, those things were, were given in public speeches, but there was no news broadcasting of things. And so um, one of the functions of news, I think, Myron, in a democracy, besides informing people, is also to be witness, you know, a, a fair witness to what's happening. And that's ob- ostensibly what objective reporting is about. In Cambodia, there were no witnesses, and I mean, at least from a news media perspective. The only witnesses were some of the people who managed to survive the genocide and to come out later and to talk to people. And it was, you know, it was after the fact that we learned about this horror. It's, and coming back now to Mr. Trump, that is why I think it's so very dangerous and irresponsible in a democracy like ours. You know, we're not perfect. We have our issues, too. But the news media plays a very definite role in in being witness, in, in promoting not less speech, but more speech, more ideas, and and to label because you don't like their coverage of you, uh, the news media as the enemy of the American people is is dangerous, frankly, and, and extremely irresponsible for anybody sitting in the White House. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with political commentator J- Joe Tooman. And, and Joe, um, I, I'm also fascinated... Uh, with what I'm calling, I don't know if others have called it this, but I'm calling the the 35% strategy, which is akin to, for baseball fans, the Mendoza line. And that's sort of like the floor uh, uh, for for President Trump. Um, Can you govern for four years like that? I, I, well, the peculiar thing is, uh, I think two years for sure. I'm not sure about four years. Um, I mean, we're, we're talking about, will his base stay with him? Right now, that base is angry at members of the Congress. And who stands to benefit from that is a good question. I don't think any of those people, his own supporters, are going to throw out the bums, as they used to say, in Congress if they're Republicans and replace them with Democrats. So gonna, there's going to be need to be an alternative. But it's, it's also possible that some of those people who are Trump supporters now, who are angry at the Congress if all the crazy promises he made don't come true, um, that their response will be what people do sometimes when they're disillusioned, which is they won't vote. And so to answer your question, um, it will be difficult, of course, if, if uh, one or, or both of the houses in Congress go to the Democrats, or if a, I don't think we're going to really see a viable third party, but hypothetically anything could happen. If something else rises, a Democratic equivalent of the Tea Party that sort of is a, a, a splinter group within the Democratic Party, but which gives them a majority, yes, it'll be difficult for him to govern because uh, I don't think there'll be much mood uh, for them to play ball with him unless, unless, and this is a big unless, Unless he grows into this job and starts to become a centrist again like he was before he ran for office on some of the social issues. And then possibly you know, there could be some rapprochement. But um, 
believe me when I tell you, there are people inside his own party who are very, they publicly are careful about what they say about it, but privately very concerned for their own careers and also for you know what this means for the Republican Party. And if he, you know, I don't think you and I would be having this conversation, this particular conversation, um, if he didn't control both, if, if the GOP didn't control both houses. I mean, that's what's given him the strong hand here. Um, but he's, you know, even with that, with all that power, he's he's not being smart about how he's using it at all. Not when I say smart, I don't mean to suggest he's stupid. Just that he's not being strategic. Well, to you, to that point, I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll, I recently had um, Dr. Victor Hansen from the Hoover Institution on the show. Yeah, yeah. And um, he was making the point uh, that President Obama's use of uh, executive orders, in effect, weaponized President Trump. Um. I would argue that the climates are different, uh, but the outcome is the same, that that President Obama had a Congress that was, by and large, hostile to his agenda. President Trump has a Congress, you know, his party. But the the use of executive orders by both men served to alienate the legislative branch. And so doesn't that— Further hamper his ability to to govern long term if he's con- continue to alienate one part of the uh, branch of government. Absolutely, you know, unless unless he's giving the GOP exactly what they want, and suddenly there's strong public approval for Republican members of Congress. Um, you know, look, the, the first job when you get elected is to get reelected, and people in the House and the Senate are always concerned about, you know, the next election cycle. And incumbents generally do a good job of paying attention to their uh, constituencies, and that's the reason incumbency advantage is so hard to overcome. But, you know, we're in uncharted territory here because we have a president who is very popular with, if not 50 percent, it's a smaller base, like you said, 35, 40 percent, whatever it is, who will hang with them. But they're not sure about the GOP and the Congress yet. And and so if the president is reduced either to losing a House or two in the Congress or if he's got a GOP, but they're not always going to play ball with him. And so his preference is to be imp- sort of an imperial president in some way just by go, go through executive orders all the time. I don't see why it wouldn't produce the same result that, unfortunately, President Obama's did when they left him no choice by refusing so many times to, uh, to consider his legislation or his ideas. Um, I mean, in some ways, we, I think it's accurate to say that in Obama's case, um, the, the Congress's orientation towards him, um, uh, which may also, let's be honest, uh, at least for some people, not all, but for some people may also have been at some base level about race, um, engendered his, his response, which were the executive orders. And I don't think anybody wants to govern that way. I mean, it works better when you've got cooperation and frankly, from a political standpoint, when you all are working together, then you can spread the credit and you can also spread the blame. <laughs> something right, doesn't work. Right. And so, you know, I, I don't think that this was something Obama wanted to do. And I, I I hope it's not something that Trump wants to do either, because in the end, it's it's uh, it's not a winning strategy. You, you, you really need in our system you, to to go along. you got to get along, as they say. And uh and there's no, there's no shame in, in doing something that everybody benefits from. I mean, it all it works much better that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're constantly fighting with people, uh, and then you're in these protracted squabbles that, you know, that when in years when we should really be growing and doing things that are great, um, you know, you end up with very little. Uh, I do think I agree with you. I, I think this was in some ways a tragedy of of your President Obama's presidency, which in many ways I think will be remembered fondly. But you wonder how much more he could have done um, if the Congress had been willing to work with him. You know, and that's why coming back to your earlier question, I, I do think that the midterm elections, you know, which are less than two years away, are going to be you know, pivotal for for Trump. Uh, it could very—it's not unheard of for most voters, more than fifty percent, to look at this and say, you know, one party shouldn't be controlling everything. Let's return the House or the Senate or both um, to the other party and balance things out. And and that's historically the way it's it's been in most elections. It's really very rare that, that uh, one party retains control of everything all the way through. Um, how serious is uh, Mike Flynn um, leaving his position as national security advisor? Well, 
actually, I, I think in some ways maybe healthy that he's gone, and this is no personal criticism of, of, of uh, former General Flynn, but frankly, uh, if you've read his book, I have, and, and read what he wrote about how the president needed to have one strong person who would be accountable for taking on these rogue nations, blah, blah, blah. He was clearly writing about himself. Um, I, I, I'm really not certain he was the right person for that job. And frankly, I'm also a believer as someone who studied the presidency, um, that national security advising should come from multiple sources, not just be dominated by one person. And I also think the people inside that circle, I mean, it's good that they come from different backgrounds and maybe can offer different perspectives, but I would never, ever, ever have put uh, Steve Bannon in that situation, who may have been military a long time ago, but this is a civilian guy, and, and his whole agenda is to be a, a postmodern Rasputin <laughs> in this administration. <laughs> you know, if, if Trump sees himself as a disruptor, it's, it's Bannon that's sort of pulling those levers from behind, unfortunately. Um, so to your question, uh, I think in some respects it's, it's good that he's gone. Um, you want more voices, not less, in that room. Maybe there'll be an opportunity now for Secretary of Defense Mattis, who is, I think, a little more reasonable on a lot of these things, sensible about NATO, um, careful about uh, and suspicious of the Russians, um, you know, not willing to, to dive into bed with them on everything. It'll, hopefully, there'll be more opportunity for him. I hope that you also see more, you know, the, the chair of the Joint, Joint Chiefs of Staff invited back into that discussion instead of being dismissed, uh, and and other people as well. I mean, there are clearly other voices that uh, Mr. Trump should be exposed to. You know, you, when you're president, if you have a very small number of people whispering into your ear, you have a very narrow view of the world. And with no disrespect to our president, but he has not impressed me, honestly, of this far. As a uh, as anything more than a smart guy who's good at impromptu speaking, but I don't see him as a deep thinker. Um, and if you're not a deep thinker, if your thinking is a little shallow and your information is a little superficial, like the comment about Sweden coming from some Fox News report, he just sort of dumped it into a speech. Um, you really need, if you're that kind of person, you, it only helps you to be exposed to more voices and deeper voices. And I think that General Flynn's departure hopefully will allow for that to happen. If it doesn't, uh, then we're in serious trouble. Well, not to disagree with you, but just the latest report was that the president, right before we went on the air, was meeting with Josh Bolton for that position. So we'll, Yeah. Uh, so what do you think about that? <laughs> You're asking me. Yeah. Oh, well, 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 I, I, well, I, I think, I think my, my response to you would be, so you quickly turned the tables on me in this interview, my response to you would be, you just answered it. <laughs> just, to, <laughs> just to, I would just juxtap, you know, just transpose the names, but you just answered it. <laughs> well, Bol Bolton look, is certainly an experienced hand. And, uh, but you know what? I don't, and I don't agree with all of his uh, perspectives on national security, certainly, uh, or his you know, views about Iran or, or Russia or whatever. Not not all of them. He's he's maybe a little more extreme than my taste. But his is an experienced, informed perspective. Nothing wrong with that in the room. You know, as long as he's balanced by some other people, because. Then, as I said before, then the president is really looking at a rich, deep menu, not just a what you get at the cafeteria is what we serve. Right. <laughs> you know, it's it's a it's a deep menu, and with some guidance, then hopefully, because I don't think that the president Trump, as I said before, is stupid. I don't think he's not intelligent. I think he is. Uh, you can't get where he's gotten, you know, and be a dummy. But as I said before, the willingness to process through things, to deeply reflect on them, that I think was characteristic of his predecessor, President Obama, was a pretty careful thinker about these things, would really serve Trump better. And I think you get that when you've got um, a wider range of, of voices, but also smart people and experienced people you know, talking to you. Because you know, the things that he does, ultimately, as president, affect everybody. And so you really better have thought this through very carefully. And, you know, the, 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 the ban on travel that he pushed through in an effort to keep promises. I admire him for wanting to keep a promise, but it was a perfect example of not having thought through the consequences of everything and how it might affect people and how, you know, it might end up in the courts and the rest of it. It was, that, 
that's shallow thinking. And that you can fix that by just saying, next time we're going to be more careful about this and I'll consider all the options. But that wasn't his initial instinct. Maybe that's the product of inexperience, but uh, it may also be the product of shallow thinking, as I said before. I was thinking, as you were speaking, I was thinking, I went all the way back to 1961 uh, with the Bay of Pigs. Oh, yeah. And, and President yeah. Kennedy realizing, I didn't ask the right questions. He actually had Eisenhower down to Camp David, like, how did this go wrong? And and learning from those mistakes. So we have plenty of uh, evidence of uh, ex- uh, presidents making mistakes, but as how, what I'm hearing you say is, how do we respond, how does the president respond from making those uh, mistakes? Well, hopefully with a little uh, humility, I think would be a good start. Um, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that he wants to uh, accentuate the positive. Um, I think he would be do well to stop blaming leaks or to stop blaming people inside his administration who are obstructing him as if they're the, they're, it's their fault that he didn't think something through, um, or blaming judges for you know, doing their job and upholding for reading the constitution, people. you know, yeah, you know, um, I, I, I think he would be well received, frankly, if he said, you know, I'm learning this job and, and we've had a couple of bumps in the road, but my pledge to you is to do a very good job. I want to be a good president. I want to be everybody's president. Here's the process we're going to go through in making the decisions to try and keep these promises that I made. And I, I want you to know that I am listening to lots of People. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, to be as thoughtful about this as possible. Um, you know, I, I think in some ways, though, Byron, one of the problems for anybody, this isn't just Trump's problem, is, you know, when, when you are 70 years old and you've lived most of your life, you are at that point in your life the person that you are. And, and a 70-year-old doesn't change. A 70-year-old business person and a billionaire who's used to giving orders, not, you know, coordinating and, and sharing power with people. Um, it's very difficult for them to suddenly become somebody else. And and so there is a there's a human part of me that sort of I wouldn't say I empathize, but I I understand how difficult a challenge that may be for someone uh, that far along in his life who's accomplished the things that he has. But the fact is he, he wanted this job. He fought for it. He he you know, with the help of the Russians or whomever managed to get the job. <laughs> Um, but he's there, and if he is there, if he wants to be a, a effective um, and do good, not harm to the country, he needs to become, frankly, a different kind of leader than he's being right now. And I'm, I'm to be more hopeful with you on your show than just critical. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that that he will aspire to that and do something like that with God's will. But you know, it's it's been a very rough month, frankly, in Washington inside that White House, a very rough month indeed. Well, we will, Joe, we will try to have you, we won't, we, we, we won't call you back to react to everything that occurs, but I think other things will occur. But uh, <laughs> we, we, will, we will definitely have you back later in the year because uh, whenever we have you on, I know our listeners, um, uh, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but um, I've gotten emails from our listeners When's that Joe Tuman guy coming back? We we, we really like oh, him. So well, anytime, Brian. I always enjoy talking. So to so sure. your your analysis is uh, has been received very well here in the Tar Heel State, my friend. Oh, very good. Well, I'm in, I love that part of the country, <laughs> by the way. So that's that's back at you. That's mutual for sure. Joe Tuman, thank you, sir, for being on the public rally today. Okay, thanks, Brian. That was Joe Tuman. Stay tuned as I talk with Kel Billings about his myriad humanitarian efforts in the West Bank. Welcome back. Ten years ago, Kel Billings left his position as a senior pastor in North Carolina. He had no immediate plans going forward, but he knew he was being led to something else. That something else turned out to be comforting the least of these through his humanitarian efforts in the West Bank. I am honored to have him on the public morality to share his experiences. Kel Billings, welcome to the Public Morality. Ah, good morning, Byron. Thank you so much. Um, let's let's begin by uh, having you share with our listeners just how you, how this journey began for you. Ah, uh, in 2007, I was pastoring a church uh, and really felt God, what I believed, God nudging me to resign. 
and to go to Bethlehem um, to volunteer with a local Christian humanitarian aid organization there. And, and when you say, you know, for, so, for those who may be unfamiliar with that terminology, you know, that God was prompting you to resign, well, what does that mean? Yeah, I, I felt what I believed to be a nudge mm-hmm. um, in the sense of a lack of peace about where I was at and things becoming trans, becoming transitional, coming to a close there, which caused me to start to, start to explore other opportunities and other things and um, to try to determine if God was nudging me to move, where I was to go to, and um, using a process of kind of peace or anxiety with, with that. So, 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 so during that process, that, is it fair to say that that was a, a season of uncertainty for you? Yeah, definitely, definitely, a lot of unknowing. No, I imagine it's pretty scary too. Yeah, it, it was. <laughs> you know, I was a second career pastor, and I'd already resigned from Wachovia, and really uh, thought I'd answered the big question, and was a little bit, no, a lot frustrated with God because I thought we'd already done this whole change of career, change of path stuff. So it really didn't make a lot of sense. I thought. Now, if you had to sum up um, your post-pastoral project, if you had to sum that up, how, how would you describe the work that you're doing now? How would you describe it? Well, as a follower of Jesus, Jesus teaches, and it seems very significant to Jesus when he teaches this. He says, we're to love God with all we got and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so that's the foundation for what I do, is that loving God and, and loving neighbor itself. And so to do that, we have to put ourselves in another position the best we can, understand their position, and then ask what their needs are. Uh, and I know in talking with you, um, when, when you talk about loving uh, one's neighbor, I, I, I know from our previous conversations that that is not a, uh, a doctrinal exclusive love. Like it's whoever our neighbor is. Yeah, so um, Jesus has asked that several times in, in the Gospels, and at one point he gives this story uh, that demonstrates that, and he uses one who's both racially and theologically different to be the hero of the story. And so it seems to me that we're to alleviate human suffering whenever we encounter it, no matter who it is. And uh, uh, that would be the Good Samaritan parable, is that correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. So um, tell us about... Um, your first day in Bethlehem back in 2007. You hadn't even, you didn't even at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, but at the time you didn't even know that this would be your journey. Am I? Am I? Correct, yeah. Um, I knew very little about what I was going into, which was probably very helpful. Had I known, I, I probably could have come up with a lot of reasons not to. But my first day at the, at, at, in Bethlehem, I'm helping a local humanitarian at aid organization, a Christian organization that's part of Bethlehem Bible College. And the first day in Bethlehem, I've arrived the night before, and the first day I'm walking outside with a gentleman from the college there, and I'm in vacation mode. I mean, I mean, man, I'm here where Jesus, where we think Jesus was born. And I'm looking around, just taking it all in, and just kind of in the daze, and in the middle of all the Mid-Eastern architecture, I see these gray concrete buildings, about three, four, five stories high, different different heights, different dimensions, uh, very cluttered, very densely populated, kind of haphazardly put together. They look like, almost like a large compound or some unplanned um, apartment complex. And it just really didn't fit in. So I asked the gentleman with me, I said, what are those buildings? He says, well, you know, that's that's the United Nations refugee camp. And I said, refugees from where? He said, well, you know, Jerusalem. And I said, well, Jerusalem's only six or seven miles away. Why are the refugees from Jerusalem here in Bethlehem? He said, well, you know. And he kept saying, you know, and I had no idea. And he said, well, you know, when um, the U.N. took 52% of Palestine and they created Israel, pre-Israeli paramilitary forces came in and using military power drove people out of their homes. Excuse me, Kel, that would be in 1948 that he's referring to at that point, right? Yes. Okay. And, and I'd never heard that. He said, yeah, these, these people who were living in Jerusalem were forced out of their homes, and, and they came to Bethlehem. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah. He said, you know Dr. Bashara, the president and founder of the Bible College, you met him last night. He and his family were Jerusalemites. And his father was a non-combatant standing on the front porch, 
and he was shot and killed. So he, Dr. Bashar, at about the age of 10, he and his younger brother had to drag his father's body in off the front porch and then the next day bury him in the backyard because had they gone outside the front or tried to get to a cemetery, they had been shot and killed also. And I was like, what? By at this point, I'd pastored two churches and had half of an MDiv degree, and I'd never heard any of this. And he says, yeah, he says, um, the refugee camps are continually being filled. He said, if, if you come to church this Sunday, you'll meet our worship leader, and he and his family have just recently been displaced by settlers and are now living in a refugee camp. And I said, what's a settler? And we hear these terms on the news, and this week it's been on the news a lot, settlers and settlements, but it's really not a vivid description of what these people are doing. If we use the term squatters, we'd understand that much better. And by squatter, you're, you're, you're talking about the, the Israeli um, settlers. You're calling them squatters, am I correct? Yes. Okay, yes. go ahead. Y- yes. Well, say so, more about that if you would. Yeah, so Israeli settlers who um, cross the U.N. boundaries and going into the Palestinian territories, what's often called the West Bank, and they go in often with private-type private, private type military or security forces and a couple of construction crews, and they... Uh, if the land's inhabited, the first thing they do is they start driving people out of their homes. And and what they do is they'll often cut the electricity, and they'll cut off the water. And then, uh, as a means of economic persecution displacement, they will, they will start cutting down olive groves and grape vineyards that's been in the family for generations. And these settlers will go in, and they'll displace the people from the land, and then they'll start to build these these um apartment complexes and then and then housing development and that's how a settlement exists now for 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 a point of reference um the, these settlements were are, are are being created not based on the 1948 borders but the 1967 borders but after the 7 day war is that correct that that is correct um so so these settlers uh, these settlements encroach, exceed those borders, and, and take inhabited land, often, often land that's been inhabited and cultivated and farmed by the same family for generations and generations and generations. Now, I can imagine some of our listeners right now would say, oh, this guy is uh, pro-Palestinian. How, how, how would you answer that? Um, I, I would say I'm pro-Jesus. And I'd go back to the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus says we're to love our neighbor as ourselves and alleviate human suffering whenever we encounter it. And I was there for six months that first time and highly immersed in, in, in a lot of human suffering and, and started to see and under things, understand things from a perspective, different perspective than I'd often heard. Well, um, let's talk about that for a minute. Um since you've spent time there and then you've come back. So when you, when you come back uh, to America, uh, I'm sure you see things on television where the news is cast. Um, what is it that we are not seeing um, that based on your perspective, having spent quite a bit of time over there? Well, I think the first thing I want to say is, you know, as a follower of Jesus, I certainly believe in, in, in nonviolence. And there are significant acts of violence on both sides, um, the Israeli side and the Palestinian side, that I do condemn, that I do not support. Um, Israel certainly has a right to its existence. It certainly has a right to live in peace. But I don't think we're oft, we often see in the States, we, I don't think we often hear of, of what settlements are. We don't have an accurate description of, of this displacement, the land confiscation, and how people are suffering. For example, Bethlehem uh, has an overall population of about 25,000, and in three UN refugee camps, there are estimated to be 14,000 people. Nearly two-thirds of Bethlehem population lives in refugee camps, and most Americans have probably never heard that. So, so what would you say to those um, uh who see the, the Palestinians as an existential threat to Israel? How, what would you say to them right now? I, I, I would say that there are some Palestinian factions who exist 
um, not to pursue peace, but to wreak havoc and to cause harm and destruction. And I think there needs to be an adequate and a fair response to that. But at the same time, I think we as a global community need to understand the anger and the frustration and, and the oppression that's taking place. Are there, in, 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 in your time there, would, you, would it be fair to say that um, the extremes on the Palestinian side is all, and also on the Israeli side driving this debate? Yeah, I think that's very fair to say. I think there's a lot of innocent people who just want to live in peace who are caught in the middle on both sides. So, 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 so given, given your time over there, uh, we're speaking with um, Kel Billings, um, who has spent quite a bit of time. Um, before I say that, tell me, where have you spent time? Tell, tell, me, tell, tell our listeners, where, 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 where have you uh, spent considerable time when you've gone on your trips? Uh, so, yeah, so for the past four and a half years, I've been uh, primarily in Bethlehem, but also in spent this past year, spent a significant amount of time in Jordan and on the island of Lesbos, which is an island two miles off the coast of Turkey, and both of those locations working with Syrian and Iraqi refugees. So so you ha so then you, you, you definitely have a perspective that, that um, differs from what most of us receive on the nightly news. Um, and, and given that perspective, um, if you put your prognosticator hat on, um, how do you see this playing out? I, I'm not sure. There, there, there's not an easy answer. There's not an easy solution. And, and I'm not sure there's, there's valid arguments on both sides for a two-state or a one-state solution. But both are very difficult. Mm -hmm. What, um, uh, for those who may not know, what is a one-state solution? What would that be? It would be um, one Israeli state that 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 encompasses both what's considered Israel and Palestine, or the Palestinian territories, um, often called the West Bank, and and in, and Gaza. That would be a one-state solution, and the two-state is 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 a fully autonomous Palestinian state. Now, I could see um, someone saying, but if you have a one-state solution, then um, that would uh, destroy um, the, overall, the overarching uh, mission of Israel to, to, to be a state for Israelis. It, it would. I, but I'm not sure that's—I'm not sure that's the best way to proceed. All right. Why not? I mean— t t you know. Um, well, currently Israel, Israel, and not 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 including Palestinian territories, but Israel proper has both Jewish Israelis, it has Christ, Christian Israelis, and Arab Muslim Israelis. So the Muslims and Christians, those are Palestinians who were who were living there prior to forty eight and and sixty seven, who were not displaced and put in the refugee camps. So it's already a multi-ethnic, multi-faith community, nation. Um, and then what, what are the challenges of a two-state solution as you see them now having been on the ground there? Um, the, the, the settlements, the squatters, the way that they have um, confiscated land, it's created a non-contiguous West Bank or Palestinian state. And so in order for a Palestinian state to exist that is continuous, contiguous, excuse me, there would need to be a lot of displacement and removal of, um, of Israeli citizens who are in the Palestinian territories. And that would be a huge challenge, I think. And I could see that being a non-starter uh, for Israel, and I'm guessing, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that that would be the only way the Palestinians would agree um, to a two-state solution. I think so. Uh, it, you know, different times you hear different things, but I think that I think that's a very reasonable statement. Mm -hmm. um, uh, before I let you go, let, let us talk about um, 
some of the faces that that you've seen on a on your myriad trips that sort of stand out to you? The the one that always stands out um, is a young man named Robbie Rami. And I met him in 2007 when I was when I was there at first, and he was a student of the Bible College. He's Palestinian Christian. His family lived there on the outskirts of Bethlehem for generations. They had they had farmed, raised olives, um, and grapes, and some apricots and almonds, and had just been there for uh, generations and generations and generations. And he and I were talking one day, and I was asking him about his experiences as, as being a Palestinian and and living in Bethlehem and being a Christian and and, and just, just trying to understand and learn his story. And I asked him about the settlers and if he'd had any experience with them. And, and his face clouded a little bit, and he said, yeah. He said, one day last year, I left home and was coming to the college. And on my way, I remember that I had forgotten something. So I went back. And I get there, and there are these settlements with some armed guards, settlers, excuse me, with armed guards cutting down our olive trees. Now, all the trees are self-regenerating, and they have a life expectancy of about a thousand years. So these trees could have been up to a thousand years old. And as a means of of economic persecution, these settlers are cutting down their olive trees. So I said, Rami, what did you do? He said, Well, I went to the house, got some of the family, we started running towards these settlers, and they started shooting at us. And I said, well, Then what did you do? He said. Well, we ran back to the house. We took cover, and we called some more family to come up, and then went back, and they were gone. But a lot of the trees are already cut. I was like, wow. And he said, and he keeps talking after he, after he got to that point. He says, you know, a couple of days later, the rain started. And there in Bethlehem, what happens, it doesn't rain any during the summer, and then when the rains first come, all the dirt and dust that's built up on the streets just becomes like mud, and the streets are super slick. And he said, during, during the rains, when it first started, I noticed that a jeep one day had slid off in the ditch. So I walked to the tractor and drove the tractor down the road to get to the, to get to the, to the jeep. And I get there, and I realized that it's one of the settlers who had been shooting at us and cutting our trees. I said, what would you do? He said, I pulled him out of the ditch. I said, why, Rami? Why would you do that? He said, because that's what Jesus would want me to do. Kel Billings, uh, thank you for being on The Public Morality today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.